would stand with me, we're going to read through a familiar psalm. This is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord, you are our shepherd, our good shepherd, and we are your sheep. We come to you this morning as we are, joyful, hurting, encouraged, rested, exhausted, distressed, even doubting, but trying to live faithfully in a world that is hostile to you, and as we follow you, to us as well. Forgive us for doubting you, for our wandering, and for our neglect of you. We do that to our own peril. We are needy, we are dependent, and we pray for your protection and deliverance in our individual circumstances today. Thank you for your promises, provision, and protection, and most of all, for the reality that in Jesus we will dwell in your house, in your presence forever. Bless Pastor Jeff as he leads us in your word and prepare us to, re prepare us to receive it by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, how we doing? Great to see all of you. I know what you were thinking. Winter was over. Then it came back, and it's back, right? Well, welcome. Uh, good to have you here this morning at church. For those of you who are visiting with, the first, uh, with us the first time, we're so glad you could be with us. I don't know if you knew this, but we do have a men's breakfast that's coming up. Just wanted to reiterate that. Uh, if, you, if you didn't hear, if you have your Bible, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to be in that chapter today, and we're going to continue in our series on the life of David. David was a shepherd. He was a poet. He wrote that psalm, Psalm 23. He was a fugitive, which he's still a fugitive today in 1 Samuel 24, but soon he's going to be king. And so we have been looking at the life of David and the lessons that we learned from David uh, relative to the Christian faith. President Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural speech delivered near the close, close of the Civil War addressed a deeply fractured and exhausted nation. And the phrase, with malice toward none, with charity for all, he urged forgiveness and unity to heal the country. He laid out a vision for a future where Americans could begin to, to heal regardless of their wartime allegiances or grievances. Two years earlier, he declared this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Eloquent words. But now in post-war time, those words begin to take shape in the form of policy. 
He insisted on amnesty for any Confederates who took an oath of allegiance to the Union. He proposed the 10% plan. You know what that was? He proposed that any state could be readmitted into the Union so long as 10% of their registered voters pledged their allegiance to the United States, acknowledging that slavery was wrong. He advocated for self-governance. He wanted the southern states to get back to governing themselves as soon as possible. He opposed the radicals in his own party, the radicals in his own cabinet, his administration who proposed occupying or permanent occupation of northern forces in the south. He officially denounced the carpetbaggers. Remember the carpetbaggers from high school civics? These political and financial adventurers from the north who took advantage of the Reconstruction era and moved down south so that they could weasel their way into positions of power and governance and financial prosperity. He set forth a vision for the education of freedmen. He championed the education of formerly enslaved people and pushed for the immediate voting rights of the so educated. Any African Americans who had become educated, he pushed for their immediate, immediate voting rights. Lincoln chose the path less traveled. Lincoln chose the path of mercy and leniency and a call to commitment. He understood the principle that things don't get better. They don't change for the better. A family, a nation, a person, a church, by sidestepping the hard stuff. The path of expedience, taking the shortcut, avoiding all discomfort, dodging uncertainty or ducking responsibility, choosing to wrap ourselves in the warmth of the familiar, never venturing out of our comfort zones and doing the thing that you would least expect. The comfort zone, by the way, is by definition an anxiety-free space where we live and we are never challenged and we never grow. Lincoln understood that that path would never lead to growth. It is only as we embrace what is most difficult that we can experience something that is truly extraordinary. And 1 Samuel chapter 24 is that kind of story. Like Lincoln, David chooses mercy rather than vengeance. His action of mercy is so undeniable that it seems to melt the heart of a calloused tyrant who's been chasing him all this time to kill him. Let's pick up the story in verse 1. It says, when Saul, King Saul, returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness in En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's young, fit men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And when Saul came to sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. That's an interesting point in the story. And David and his men were actually staying in the cave, the recesses of that cave. So they said to him, David's men said to him, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do with him whatever you desire. And then David got up and he didn't do it. He secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So given word that David is in this region, what they do is they go down to the Judean desert and they try to find him. Now, where is En Gedi? Today it's called Ein Gedi. Uh, this was one of the, our stops last June when we went to uh, Israel. 
Ein Gedi is a nature reserve located in the Judean desert along the western shore of the Dead Sea. So as you go up the path, it's about two football fields. It's a two football field walk. I mean, it's a path and you go up to this fountain, this fortress in Engedi. And what you see, I'll put this picture up. You can see it. I took this one. As you walk along the path, you can see just these implacable cliffs. And they're just covered in caves, natural caves. There's about three to 5,000 caves there in Engedi. And so you can imagine uh, Saul could have relieved himself in any of those caves. But he just so happens to pick the one that David and his men are hiding in the recesses of that particular cave. And it's just, as you walk up it, you can't believe it. Now, you also notice some vegetation. It's called the wilderness, right? Uh, put up the next picture, if you will. As you go up, you can see this vegetation, and it's along the river there, which goes up to the fountains. There's a lower fountain, and then there's an upper fountain. Put the next picture up. When you get up to the top, by the time you get to that fountain, you've just walked a couple hundred yards, but by the time you get to this lower spring, you have sweated through your clothes. You are so thirsty, you want to die, and you cannot wait to get under the shade and into the water. You see people just standing there, just bathing in the water. It's so hot. And then you think how hard life must have been for these guys like David traveling in this area, and then you go back to your air-conditioned bus. It's great. <laughs> and so when you get there, you realize this is, a, this is literally an oasis in the desert. <laughs> and that is why David is holding out there. This is why he's made this area his fortress. So when it says that Saul went into the cave to relieve himself, uh, the phrase in Hebrew means he went into the cave and left his robe at his ankles. That's what it says. So we know that nature is calling. He has to answer nature's call, but it's also going into the cave. If you go to the upper fountain, what you'll find is there's a cave back in there. And when you go into that cave where that fountain is coming out and there's this big blue pool of water, what happens is the temperature drops 10 degrees. It's so nice. It goes from like 110 to 100. It's great. Okay? So, they are, so Saul has likely taken refuge in the cave not to just answer nature's call, but also to disrobe himself and just enjoy the coolness of the cave. And now it just so happens that's where David and his men are. Let's read the rest of the story. Verse 5 says, afterward, David's conscience bothered him because, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's royal robe. He said to his men, as the Lord is my witness, I would never do such a thing to, to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against Saul. Since he is the Lord's anointed, he is the king. With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. So David's sense of honor for the king, for the office of king, is greater than his need for retribution or his, his need for deliverance from Saul. He has to persuade his own soldiers not to harm him, but to let the king walk out on his own two feet. And David's conscience is pierced through. The Hebrew text says, and David's conscience attacked him. David's conscience assaulted him. How could I have even come so close to harm the king that I cut off a corner of his robe, which was discarded over on, resting over on the rocks? And so we learn what kind of character David has. He didn't take advantage of the situation, though he could have. He didn't strike his pursuer 
in his most vulnerable moment. You, the most vulnerable moment you have is when you're relieving yourself and when you're asleep. And he didn't do that. He didn't take advantage of this. He doesn't capitalize on the opportunity. What does he do? He takes a token to prove to Saul, I never, ever meant you any harm. Never. And in a day when people choose dishonor, David encourages us to choose honor. And in a day, in a day when people choose the expedient shortcut, David models patience and long-suffering for God's will. And in a day when men are swayed by the masses who all around us are telling us, this thing must be good. This is providence. This is God who has, who has delivered this thing into your hands. What is David saying? No, no, this bothers my conscience, and I'm not, I'm not going to violate my conscience. Verse 7, let's pick it up there. So then Saul, he's done resting in the cave. He gets up, went, goes on his way, and after that, David got up, and he went out of the cave and called to Saul, my lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low. He prostrated himself with his face to the ground and paid homage. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of people who say, look, David intends to harm you? You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in this cave. And someone advised me to kill you. But I took pity on you and I said, I won't lift a hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand. See it? For I cut it off while you were relieving yourself. But I didn't kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you, even though you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord take vengeance on you for me. But my hand will never be against you. As the old proverb says, wickedness comes from wicked people. My hands will never be against you. Who has the king of Israel come after? What do you chase after today? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord judge between and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. And this is a brilliant, moving speech. Listen, if you're into making speeches, this is about as brilliant of one as you're ever going to find in the Bible. And David appeals to six things in this speech. He appeals to honor. He appeals to honor the principle of honor. He says, my Lord, the king, and he comes out and he bows before this man who does not deserve this honor. He doesn't deserve it. David appeals to logic. David says, think about it for a second. I had you dead to rights. I could have killed you, and I didn't. That should tell you that the people that are telling you that I want to kill you are lying to you. Think about the logic of it. And David appeals to Saul's conscience. He comes out, and he's, in this moving moment, he says, Abba, my father. Because David had lived with Saul longer than he'd lived with his actual dad, Jesse. And so he looks at this man as a fatherly figure, a fatherly mentor, and he appeals to his heart. He appeals to, to Saul's emotions. He appeals to his own innocence. He says, I haven't sinned against you. Everyone knows that I'm not after you. And he appeals to God. God is our judge. God will judge between you and me to tell us who's in the right. God will be my vengeance. I won't take my vengeance and retribution out against you. I would never do that. May the Lord judge between us. David refuses to put himself in the place of God to be Saul's judge. 
But that is exactly what Saul is doing to David. Saul has presumed God's place to judge David. And he declares, may the Lord judge between us. Verse 16, it works. <laughs> the speech is effective. It changes, at least in this story, the heart of the king. Look at his response when David finished saying these things to him. Saul replied, is that your voice, David, my son? And Saul wept aloud. Here I think we have an earnest moment. He's not putting on airs. This isn't for show. He weeps aloud. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, son, for you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me today what good you did for me when the Lord handed, clearly handed me over to you. You didn't kill me. And when a, when a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? And may the Lord repay you with good for what you've done for me today. Now, I know for certain that you will be king. I know that promise is true. And the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David swore to Saul. Then Saul went back home, and David and his mighty men went back up to the stronghold. The story ends with this strange moment where it seems like the old Saul, before a lifetime of disobedience, before his sin, before the torments of evil spirits, before flirting with pagan idolatry at the tamarisk tree, before he murders an entire city of priests in his pursuit of David, before he relentlessly pursues the innocent, a glimpse of the man who was, a momentary glimpse of the man who could have been. Imagine for a moment if Saul had said this back in chapter 18. Oh, what a different story it would have been. Oh, what a different world they would have lived in. We would be reading Hebrews 11 with that list of the hall of faith. We call it the hall of faith, all these Old Testament saints. Saul would be in that list. He would be in that list, but he's not. And so this story teaches us at least one clear principle of the Christian life, and here it is. David demonstrates the power of mercy over retribution. David demonstrates the life-altering, life-changing power of mercy, mercy over retribution and vengeance. And though vengeance was the norm in the ancient world, he chose compassion despite having the upper hand, clearly. This decision wasn't a weakness, but a strength of character defying all the brutal norms of the ancient Near East. Compassionate, compassion and mercy for sinners is at the heart of Jewish religion, and it isn't at the heart of any other religion. Did you know that? Except for Christianity, because it's Judeo-Christian faith, right? But compassion and mercy, showing someone compassion and mercy instead of crushing them in the moment of their defeat, that is inherent to the Judaic belief system. Think of Genesis 1 through 3. What, what happens to Adam and Eve? They choose to sin and disobey the Lord, and they walk away from God. They walk away from God, and then what does God do in chapter 3? Chapter 3, verse 15, here's what God promises. Even though the judgments that he promised has to come upon them, here's what he says. Someday I'm going to send you a son. Someday I am going to send you a descendant, Eve, and you're going to have a son. Your descendant will have a son, and the serpent, the devil, is going to strike his heel. And in the process of wounding him and striking him, your son is going to crush the head of the serpent. Right there, before we even get out of the story, God prophesies. God gives them a prophecy of the coming son who would undo the works of the devil, right? 
God is a merciful God. We move forward to the story of Israel and their religion, and they're out in the wilderness, and, and God is instructing Moses and Aaron to set up religion in this tabernacle, this mobile temple. And what is at the heart of this mobile temple? Do you remember what it is? It's called the Ark of the Covenant. Have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, it looked like that. That's a pretty good replica. It was this box about the size of an old antique desk. It was made of wood. And on the top of this old cart or this old uh, box, this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, on the top of it was called a mercy seat. And, and we find this in Exodus chapter 25, 17 through 22. We see God giving instructions to create this mercy seat. What is, what is the mercy seat? It's a lid. It's made of gold. It's a golden lid on top of the ark. It has two archangels on it facing each other with their wings facing each other. And that is called the mercy seat because that ark and that lid is central command. That's central command. That's the command center from which God rules his realm. And once a year on this day called Yom Kippur, the high priest is supposed to go into this most sacred, holy place where the high priest alone can go. And what does he do? He goes in, and he takes the blood of the sacrifice, and he takes it out of the bowl, and he flicks it onto this mercy seat covering it. And what's that supposed to symbolize? This sacrifice covers your sins. This sacrifice for one more year covers your sins that you committed against the Lord, and the Lord sees you as forgiven as absolved, not as guilty of your transgressions. Then we come to Romans 3, 23 and 26, and what does Paul say about Jesus? Jesus is the incarnation of that mercy. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many people have sinned? Not half, all. If you're a human being, you've sinned. Verse 24, they are justified freely by His grace. They are justified before God, before the bar of His justice. They are acquitted the verdict is you're justified. You can walk out of court on your own recognizance. You can walk out of court a free man. They're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is it? God presented Him, Jesus, as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His own righteousness because in His restraint, God had passed over the sins previously committed and God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God be a just judge if he acquits a person? Or his verdict is you're acquitted, but you're actually guilty. If all have sinned and God says you're not guilty, how can that be justice? Don't guilty people deserve judgment? The way in which you and I can avert God's wrath and His judgment is because Jesus Christ has stepped between us. He is now our mercy seat permanently. And this doesn't happen once a year or annually. Jesus Christ's death on a cross, the blood that was shed, was shed for you and it was shed for me so that God, those who have faith in Jesus, can be declared God's righteousness. Amen? Isn't that great news? Mercy is at the heart of of the Jewish Christian faith, showing someone mercy even though they clearly are guilty and they clearly stand condemned. And this is David's ethic. This is what David is all about. We read Psalm 23 at the beginning. Look at verse 6. Again, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
why would goodness and mercy follow him all the days of his life? Why? Because that's what he left behind him. That's what he left behind him. 1 Samuel chapter 24. He showed people who didn't deserve mercy, mercy. And he showed Abiathar and Abigail and all these other people goodness. And that's what follows him because that's what he left behind. And this is what the Christian is supposed to leave behind. A life of goodness and mercy. It's supposed to follow us. And he says, a life of goodness and mercy. And then what's the reward? For believing and trusting in the Lord, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forevermore, forevermore. And so whatever you left behind, that's what will follow you. If you left behind anger and harshness and abuse, that's what will follow you. If you leave behind goodness and compassion and forgiveness and mercy, that's what will come after you. You know, David pledges to Saul to never forget his family. I'm never going to forget your family. As you fast forward the story and you read those stories, when David consolidates the kingdom and Saul is now dead and he becomes king, you know what he does? He says, go bring me Saul's family. And what does he do? He doesn't kill them. He doesn't go back on his problems and say, you know what? The king has changed his mind. I'm going to kill you all. I'm going to make sure there's no one in your ranks who ever rises up against me or is tempted to, to do it. He doesn't do that. He shows them the mercy and the compassion and the kindness that he pledged he would. This is the kind of man we're dealing with. This is the kind of character we see in David. This week I reflect on the instances where blind beggars and the demon-possessed and lepers and the lame They hear that Jesus is coming into town and Jesus is walking down the street and some of them can't even see him and they just, what do they cry out? Have mercy. Have mercy on me. And what do they call him? The son of David. How did they know that the son of David would be so tied to the idea of mercy? How do they know that? Because they know the stories. They've heard the stories a thousand times. They know that David is the man of mercy. And so they are crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5, this is the heart of the Christian faith. I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss it. Watch it. Paul tells his Ephesian friends, now they had all been saved out of paganism, like crazy paganism, the worst kind of crazy stuff you can imagine. And now they're all Christians. And this is what he says. He says, we too were all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. Like we lived out there in the world just following our fleshly passions, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, whatever we thought was good. He says, and we were by nature children under the wrath of God, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. How are you saved? By grace. What is grace? It's this. We were sinners, and God saved us while we were sinners. God loved us so much that He sent His one and only Son to die for us while we were still lost and dead in our sins. That's how much God demonstrates His love for us. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, the God who abounds in mercy, the God who is rich in grace, He saved you by His grace. Remember what you once were? Remember what your life looked like before you came to Jesus? 
a life without grace, a life without compassion. And this is the character of our God. He tells his friend Titus. He writes to his friend Titus in the Isle of Crete, right there in the middle of the Mediterranean. And Titus has been sent there to pastor a church, and this, the people who live on this island are just about the, the craziest kinds of pagans you have ever read about. <laughs> I mean, this is a dangerous assignment. This is a dangerous mission for him to be there, and this is what he says. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness, because we did all these good things that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What is He saying? He's saying we're dead in our sins. We desperately needed resurrection life. If you're a dead person, you don't need instruction, do you? If you're dead, what do you need? You need life. And God has given us His resurrection life in Christ. If, if you're a guilty person, what do you need? You need clemency. You need forgiveness. And God grants both, not to those who merit it, not to those who've worked hard enough and then present a good life to God. No, He has mercy on us even in the midst of our sin as we confess our sins before Him according to His boundless compassion. And instead of becoming our judge, He becomes our Savior, our Rescuer, our life, our Father. And this is why Jesus commands us to be merciful. He says, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. This is the only life that is commensurate with a claim to believe in Jesus. If the Heavenly Father has been merciful to you in your sins and your transgressions, then you ought to be merciful to others. That should characterize a disciple. That is the mark of a true Jesus follower. Imagine for a second what it would take for Gaza and Israel to make peace. Just for a second. Try to imagine what that would take. I'm sure it was very difficult. I'm sure it was really hard. It probably took backbreaking effort to take all the money from the international community and just to create, instead of spending it on schools and houses and business and investing in the business sector and investing in hospitals, I'm sure it was very, just backbreaking effort, just very difficult to instead build a labyrinth of terror tunnels under your homes and under your businesses, and under your hospitals. I'm sure that was hard. But that's not the hardest thing they could have done. I'm sure it is very hard for Israel to send their sons and daughters, one by one, house by house, room by room, to find the terrorists and try not to kill the people who are not ter terrorists. I'm sure that is very difficult, very costly. I'm sure it's a very difficult thing to do. But that's not the hardest thing that Israel could do. What's the hardest thing that Gazans and Israel could do? Forgive. It's to show up at the same meeting and say, you know what, from this day forward, the past is the past. And we have mercy toward one another. And that's our new declaration. We're showing you mercy. Not an eye for an eye, not a tooth for a tooth. Forgiveness. Compassion. Mercy, that is the hardest thing to do. Folks, I've talked to people who have said, actually right after last service, and said and talked to me and said, listen, the abuse I experienced growing up, I don't, I don't, I can't. I can't forgive a parent who did that to me. I can't show them mercy or compassion or kindness. How could I do that? And I said, you can't do it in your own strength. 
You can't do it in your own strength. Listen, we need God's compassion. We need His mercy so that we can become people of mercy. The most difficult thing to do is to forgive someone who really, really has wronged you. Is to forgive someone and show them mercy when they really have done you wrong and they've really hurt you. Let me ask, is there anyone in your life who needs forgiveness rather than judgment or harshness right now? Is there anyone in your life today who could benefit from your mercy, from your compassion and your kindness instead of harshness or judgment right now? Is there someone in your world who needs patience, sympathy, and understanding? Is there someone who needs to be led to the truth by, by a person, you, who is slow to speak and quick to listen? Is there someone in your life who may deserve judgment and condemnation? You got them dead to rights, and you could just crush them. But instead, you convert that anger to compassion, God's love and His compassion. And that's what David does for Saul after a great speech. Now, notice what he doesn't do in this speech. He doesn't say, well... All is absolved. Be warm and be filled. He says, no, you've been sinning against me. I haven't sinned against you. And God is going to be your judge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not mine, it's the Lord's. So he doesn't tell him a lie. He doesn't say, well, just in the interest of peace, let's just tell each other lies. Nope. God is going to sort it out. But I'm not going to be your judge. Today, you're getting mercy from me. And that's what Christians do. What, it would take, what would it take for us to adopt this same mindset that was in David? Should we, what, should we take the disposition of mercy and compassion rather than lean into the easy instincts of retribution and payback? Here's what it will take. Number one, to be like Jesus, we must believe in Jesus. To be like Jesus, we must believe in Jesus. Well, what was Jesus like? He was the son of David who had mercy on those who cried out for it. And if you want to be like Jesus... You have to believe in Jesus. Why is this important? Listen, right behavior follows right belief, not the other way around. If you decide, man, I, I, this sounds good to me, actually. This sounds like the better path forward. I think I want to be like Jesus, and I think I want to extend a heart of forgiveness and compassion toward the people I think have hurt me. Great. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, it doesn't start with right behavior. It starts with right belief. Because something on the inside has to change. It has to be an internal change that works itself out. You can't just take this external thing and push it in. My 10-year-old minivan, I've never had any problems with it. I drove it 99,000 miles. That's pretty low miles for 10 years. And I decided I, I want to drive it for 10 more years. And I hope to put another 100,000 miles on it. But over the last couple of weeks, it decided to just clunk out on me. And what happened was, uh, uh, Carrie would pull away, and there would just be this bloody trail of oil and coolant all the way down the street. And just this pool, this pile there. And I thought, what has happened to my minivan? How is, she, how is this woman driving this minivan? It's not her fault. I took it to the, uh, the guy, Brian, Brian's auto, and Brian looked at it, and he said, hey, man, listen, this is a Chrysler, and they all have the same problem, right about 100,000 miles. And if you've had one, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a little oil cooler right there, and they decided to attach it to literally the hottest part of the engine, and, and they also geniusly decided to make it out of plastic. 
and so it just warps and melts. And he said, and once that happens, it just starts throwing oil. It just starts spewing oil and coolant everywhere every time you take a turn. So he fixed it, and I drove it out of his parking lot, and it just ran like a top, like it was new. You know what happens when you change the engine? You get better performance. You change the operation. You don't change the function first and then hope the engine will work itself out. No, you change the heart first. You and I, here's, here's the truth, folks. You and I have something broken in us. It's broken inside. We want to sin. We want to do what we wanted to. We want to chase the passions and desires of our flesh. We want to have vengeance and not forgive and hold on to unforgiveness with other people. And you can't decide to start being like Jesus until you know Jesus. And so the question this morning is, do you know the Savior? Do you know Christ? Have you had a heart change? And if you're an unbeliever here, and this message just pierces your heart, listen to these words in Romans 10, 9. This is what Paul tells the Roman Christians. He says, if you confess with your mouth the confession, Jesus, the confession, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that is the message that he died on a cross, he has been risen from the dead, you'll be saved. How are you saved? How do you become a believer in Jesus? How do you get this heart change at the heart level, inside out? You believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus of Nazareth to new life, never to die again. And you believe that he died on the cross and he is your mercy seat. He's the place where God reconciles relationship with lost human beings. Look at John 3, 16. This is what Jesus said from his own mouth. For God loved the world like this. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. How many sons did he have? One. One and only. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you want eternal life today? You can have it. And when you get it, you can be like Jesus, but you got to believe in Jesus. Number two, you say, well, I do. I do believe in Jesus. Okay, great. If you believe in Jesus, then you got to start following his teachings. we got to start following what he taught, what he said. Jesus' call to discipleship was not only a call to accept him by faith, it was not only a call to believe in him, it was actually a call to follow him. They became followers of his life and his model and his teaching. What does it mean to follow Jesus? We believe what he said was true. We do what he said to do. And we follow the cross-shaped pattern that he set for us. What do we mean by cross-shaped? The cross is the symbol of God's sacrificial love for us. And our lives are to be shaped, they're to be cruciform, shaped in the image of the cross. A life that is set on fire by love for other people. Love for other people in Christ. And so we believe what he said is true. We do what he says we're supposed to do. We shape our lives after the self-giving, self-sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross for others. That's the Christian life. Paul said this, let this mindset, Philippians chapter 2, be in you. That was in Christ, let it be in you. Who was in in position, very God. What he says is, he was in very nature God. He didn't have to strive to become God. He didn't have to pretend to be God. He didn't have to climb up the ladder and, 
and become God. No, he was already in eternity past by his very nature God. And what did he do? What did God do? He was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and was found in appearance as a man. And then he submitted his life to death, even death on a cross for us. And he says, let that mindset be in you. The mindset that was in Christ Jesus, let that be your mindset. Humbling yourself, loving others, giving your life for others. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said this. Then he said to them all, Jesus said to them all, if anyone wants to come after me, follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to take up our cross every day and follow Jesus? It means to put the cross on our back and love people. Let me ask you, what is your mindset today? Have the teachings and the pattern of Jesus and his life so affected the way you think that you begin to live them out? You begin to live them out because they've transformed you on the inside. And if there's someone who needs your mercy, who needs your forgiveness, even if they are clearly in the wrong, like Saul was with David. You can't mimic Jesus until you believe in him for eternal life. And if you are a believer, then you must choose to follow what Jesus taught was true. Choose to follow his example of giving his life for others. Pick up your cross and walk after him. Do what he would do. Do what he commands. And live the Christian life showing his mercy and compassion to others. Amen? Do we receive it? Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Will you bow your head, close your eyes, let's pray with, pray with me this morning. If you're a believer here and you just say, man, I'm a believer in Jesus, I am. I love Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the most amazing person who has ever lived, and I love him. And I believe that he died for me on the cross. And I believe that God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead to never die again. So I think I'm a believer. But honestly, there are some people in my heart and in my life that I hold some things against. And I just can't let it go. I can't let the anger go. I can't let the harshness go. I can't let the abuse or the sin against me go. Right now, let it go. Release it. Give it to the Lord, will you? Will you do it right now? Say, God, I don't feel like it, but I do release it. I do forgive. I do show this person who's right in front of me. I have them dead to rights. My foot is on their neck. And I show them clemency. I show them forgiveness and mercy because that's what you've commanded me to do. Will you do it right now? Turn it over to the Lord. Commit it to the Lord. Maybe you're an unbeliever here and you realize, man, I think Jesus is just all right with me. You have Doobie Brothers theology. But I'd really like to know more about him and I'd really like to follow him. This sounds like a better way to live than the way I've been living. You can know Jesus right now. You can know him right now. Will you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead after having been crucified on a cross for your sins? Are you willing to confess that with your mouth this morning? Because if you are, the Bible says you'll be saved. God will save you from a life of sin and a life of regret. He'll save you for eternity. He'll save you for time. He'll save you for now. 
In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with us this morning? Thank you.